Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom you like, behold, he is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Just a couple weeks ago on Gaudete, the third Sunday in Advent, that's when you were confirmed, David. And Gaudete, as you know, means rejoice. It's the Sunday in Advent when we light the pink candle. It's pink because the blues of Advent are lessened a bit on this day, and the white of Christmas begins to shine through. It's really a beautiful pattern, isn't it? He in whom we delight is coming. That's the joy of Advent. Even in the midst of repentance, there is joy. There, this is true because repentance is not complete or real without faith. True sorrow over your sin is either false sorrow or godless despair, if it is not also tempered by joy. True repentance, by definition, includes faith in Jesus who forgives you. There is joy as we wait for Christmas to come. And as we wait for Christmas to come, we observe a penitential season. There's all the more joy when Christmas is here. He in whom his people delight, the Lord whom we seek in our quest for joy, will come. That's Advent. And he has come. That's Christmas. This is the pattern of Advent and Christmas. It's very beautiful. The intro for Gaudete, Advent 3, is from Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I was wrong. You weren't confirmed on Gaudete. You were confirmed on on Rorate Koili. Because then the next week, so that's the intro it on the third Sunday, the next week it's the epistle lesson, the exact same words. Uh, Advent 4, Rorate Koili, rejoice in the Lord, the Lord is at hand. So that's why I got confused. And then after that comes Christmas, the Lord is here. So you see how this theme of joy builds up. It's beautiful. Rorate coili means, or chaili if you want to sound like an Italian, means drop down, ye heavens, from above as we continue, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and bring forth salvation. This is what we prayed for last Sunday, Sunday before this last, as our joy increased, as we progressed from the third Sunday in Advent to the fourth, even though we turned back to purple again from white, from pink with our candles, even then, our joy increased because Christmas was so close. We could have lit a black candle and we would have still rejoiced that Christmas is coming so, so soon. You see the anticipation in our intro, it dropped down and on Christmas, our joy is fulfilled. The heavens opened up and poured down the sun of righteousness it was so beautiful, by the way, to wake up on Christmas morning with all that snow. Totally unexpected. The heavens poured down pure white to, to cover the death of fall, so to speak. What an image. As the heavens poured down the righteous one, so also the earth opened and brought forth salvation as the womb of the virgin who was earth-born gave birth to the Christ child, our Savior. He who was born from eternity in heaven was born in time on earth. And he is our righteousness. 
He is our purity, who covers our death and sin like a blanket of white. What a beautiful crescendo of joy. I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but it's so beautiful. Rejoice in the Lord, we sing. Rejoice in the Lord always, we hear again the next week. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth, we sing on Christmas. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. See what joy awaits those who wait. See what joy there is for those who are told to rejoice in the midst of their season of repentance and sorrow, yet who look for the coming of the Lord. And as Christians today, we look to celebrate his birth. Those who are told to rejoice are told to rejoice during the penitential season of Advent. You're not told to rejoice unless there's also someone at the same time telling you to repent. Any voice that tells you to rejoice apart from Advent, so to speak, apart from John the Baptist saying, make way, it's a false joy they're encouraging you to delight in. Those who are able to rejoice on Christmas are those who repented in preparation for his coming. Everything else is false joy. And the white Christmas that fools dream of melts and leaves muddy sin exposed. But the Christmas of Christ who comes to cover our sin with his own blood remains forever. And heaven and earth will melt away. But his blood will continue to cover us. And who can condemn us now? See what Christmas joy is pent up in Advent. And see what joy we have as Christmas Christians. So now we turn to the Christmas season. It's not a long season, it's just a couple Sundays. And we see what joy remains even when we, like the shepherds, must return to our work, gather up all the sheep that scattered while we were out celebrating. That's a life of, that's a picture of our life after Christmas. And then we have to suffer again in a world that does not receive what we have rejoiced to receive in, in this holy season. This is our theme today, as we heard on Christmas morning but didn't focus on it. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And this theme we pick up as we consider the Sundays after Christmas. In fact, the Sundays after Christmas are surprisingly kind of dark. Come to church this coming Sunday or the next Wednesday, or no, no, just this coming Sunday, you'll see. But by this theme of opposition and persecution and murder, we learn the staying power of Christmas joy that we prepared ourselves to know. Today, we don't observe the traditional Sunday after Christmas because it was the next day. So since it falls on December 26th, St. Stephen's Day does, I, I figure I'm not likely going to have church the day after Christmas unless I have to, that is, unless it's a Sunday. So I thought, since I have to, let's celebrate St. Stephen Day, Stephen's Day. And I figured it would be nice, especially because it definitely takes part in this kind of gloomy, sad sorrow of the Christmas Sundays. And in fact, really epitomizes it. Part of what we would have heard today, or on Sunday, I suppose, the day after Christmas, had we focused on the first Sunday after Christmas, would be these words from, uh, from, from uh, uh, Simeon in the temple, where right after he says, the Nocturnus, Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace. He says to Mary, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. 
Yes, a sword will pierce your own soul also, he says to Mary, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. These foreboding words are perfectly fulfilled in today's festival, we, we, or Monday's, Sunday's festival. We, we consider Stephen. He was the first post-Pentecost mark. He was killed for his joy in Christ. So the reason I opened up by quoting those words from the prophet Malachi, which got me distracted talking about the crescendo of Advent into Christmas, is because with these words we hear the Lord speak in a way that has significance that maybe we don't notice all the time at first. First, we notice the Lord says that he will send his messenger who will prepare the way before him. That's John the Baptist, of course. He says, he will prepare the way before me. Notice he doesn't say, he'll prepare the way for my son. He says, for me. Now we know obviously that the Lord is God, and we know that sometimes in scripture, it is the Father speaking, and sometimes it's the Son speaking, and it really depends on the context. So for instance, on Christmas, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Obviously that's the Father speaking to the Son, right? And we might assume that when it comes to sending prophets and messengers, it is the Father who sends them in preparation for the world to receive salvation in his Son whom he sends. At least that's kind of how I've automatically understood it. The Father sends the Son, so naturally it seems that when the Lord sends prophets, it should be understood that it's the Father doing it, generally doing the sending. But here it is so clear that the Son is speaking. He sends John the Baptist as his own messenger before himself, before he himself comes, before me, he says. Now, listen to how our gospel lesson began, began this evening. From Matthew 23, Jesus speaks these words. This is right before he's crucified. Therefore, behold, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Jesus sends prophets. Wiseman describes. He always has. He sends them to prepare his own way. This clarifies so much. Even in the Old Testament, when the Lord sends prophets, it is the Son of God who sends them to prepare his own way. This is marvelous. It is, because it means that the central message and purpose of all the prophets of the Old Testament and of all preachers in the New Testament alike, inasmuch as they're all sent by the same Jesus, is to preach Jesus. It is as Jesus said to his apostles on Easter. Peace to you as the Father has sent me, so I also send you. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. So the Father sends his Son, but it is the Son who sends all others who preach in his name. The sending of prophets is not a separate sending from the sending of Christ. The Father didn't send prophet after prophet after prophet, and then finally sent his Son, as Jesus explains in his parable. At least it's not so simple. It was Jesus himself who sent those prophets. The Father sent prophets through his Son. This means the Son sent them to prepare his own way. John wasn't unique in that respect. All of them were sent by Jesus before he became flesh. The sending of the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, to quote Ephesians 4, is not in addition to the sending of Christ. It is an extension of the sending of Christ. It is Christ who sends the prophets and all who preach in his name, and it is the Father who sends Christ. We'll continue with that passage from Malachi, Malachi 3, 1. And the Lord whom you seek, he's talking about himself here, 
The Lord whom you seek, namely the messenger of the covenant, will suddenly come to his temple. That's what Malachi means, or writes. Jesus himself calls himself a messenger. He's the messenger of the covenant. He is his father's messenger. The father sent him with a message to preach peace and salvation. He's the messenger of the covenant. He preaches the gospel to the poor and to, to do what his father gave him to do, to fulfill the old covenant and establish the new covenant in his blood. That's what it means to call him the messenger of the covenant. He binds the two covenants together. He has come suddenly to his temple. And this means, especially as we consider that he does away with the old covenant by fulfilling it, this means that he has assumed our human nature so that in his human body, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells, that's what it says in Colossians 2, verse 9. He who comes to his temple is our temple. That's what it means for him to suddenly come to his temple. It means that God became man. There's no temple now other than the flesh and blood of the Son of Man. He has come and we rejoice in him. So the Father sends his Son, all other messengers, Jesus himself, either before he became true man or after he ascended to heaven. All other messengers are therefore sent by Christ to preach Christ. If you seek God, therefore, you must seek him in his temple. This was true in the Old Testament, and it's true in the New Testament, but the temple has been clarified. The temple is now in the flesh and blood of the Son of God. You seek the Father by seeking the Son, and you seek the Son by hearing the message preached by his messengers. There's no other access to the temple, to Christ, to the Father. He who hears you hears me. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is what Stephen was, a messenger. He was a pastor. He preached Christ crucified. And that's why he was killed. They crucified, or they, they persecuted Jesus by persecuting Stephen. He's described as a man of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, and wisdom, and he was called to preach the gospel like any other pastor today. The apostles had been eager to fulfill their callings as missionaries and to lead Jerusalem. And so they appointed pastors to preach and care for the congregations in Jerusalem, and Stephen was among them. So was Philip, as you know. Jesus was destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and is a sign that would be spoken against in order that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. They killed him. They murdered their God. Now talk about a fall. Their hearts were revealed. But in Jesus' death, God's heart was revealed too. It was a heart full of compassion for his enemies, that is, compassion for all humanity, whose sin he came to bear and whom he reconciled to God. Jesus was destined for the fall of many, but he was sent for the rising of many. He was sent for good. And so was Stephen. They didn't murder Stephen because of Stephen. They murdered Stephen because of Christ. Both Jesus and Stephen and every other messenger that Jesus sends, every other pastor, were destined for the fall of many. Think of this. It means that the preaching of the gospel is going to make people mad who don't want to repent, who curse Advent and want to have their Santa Claus Christmas, but they don't want to live in repentance because they don't think you find any joy in repentance. And so they think that we're just a bunch of curmudgeons who don't know how to really be happy because the only place we ever know where to find joy is where we completely empty ourselves and say, I don't find it in me. 
I repent of my sins and I find it only in Christ. No wonder they killed Stephen. He called into question the righteousness of their heart by calling into question the joy of their expression. It was fake. So yes, they were both destined for the fall of many. Jesus was destined for the fall of many. He wasn't sent for the fall of many. And neither are pastors. Pastors aren't sent to anger the world. Although they do. Rather, they are sent for the rising of many. They were sent for your rising. And this must always be the center of the message you seek to hear in your life. Not with a world that seems more and more boldly filled with disgusting sins and blasphemy and political corruption is rebuked and put in place, which any decent pastor ought to be somewhat tempted to do as he just condemns the wickedness of the world. A pastor who doesn't do that is, isn't worth listening to, honestly. But how much more is a pastor not worth listening to who so focuses on the fall of many that he forgets to preach what you need the most? You need Christ who became true man to give to you that one thing that will cause you to rise to heaven. You need the word become flesh who speaks peace and mercy to you. Stephen knew he was going to die. He knew that the world would hate him. As we sing in the hymn, from this it, from, from me this is not hidden, yet I am not afraid. I leave my cares as bidden to him to whom my vows were paid. Though life and limit cost me and everything I own unshaken, shall I trust and cleave to thee alone. That's what Stephen did. He had the gospel to preach. It was his before he told anyone else about it. And so it is for you. He preached persuasively and brought the joy of Christ to many. And God accompanied his preaching with mighty wonders that could not be denied. He convinced, rebuked, exhorted with all long-suffering and teaching. And those Jews who did not listen to Christ's messenger, John the Baptist, and so who did not prepare for the Father's messenger, Jesus, when they heard Stephen's message of Christ, they reacted in typical tyrannical fury. This is typical of people who have no joy in their lives, but who must depend instead on their own worthless righteousness and stupid rules. And these people are miserable. Their anger is wicked because their anger rises from their hatred of Christ who bore the anger of God to save the ungodly. They reject this. They're miserable. They boss you around with their stupid rules because all they have to make them happy is their own stupid obedience to their stupid rules. Look at this reaction. As it was back then, it is now. Now with Stephen, they actually had political power to bring him before the council and have him killed as they raised false witnesses against him. At least they don't have that today, I suppose. But consider what it is that Stephen preached. And we don't have time to get into it, which is a pity. Acts 7. Read the first 53 verses sometime in your devotions. It's just beautiful. 
and then come to church on Sunday. And I'm, I, I'm making a point about like, the history of, of, of God's people. And Stephen preaches on this. And he's constantly appealing to this. This is what all the prophets did. But the main theme of what he preaches isn't, you've been such rotten sinners for so long. Rather, the main focus of his sermon is God's faithfulness to sinners. And he makes it very clear, very clear, that what they are reacting against is not God being angry at sin. What they're upset about is God forgiving sin. This is the central theme of unbelief. They hate the forgiveness of sins. It is that God keeps his promises to sinners. This is what Stephen preached. So see the stubbornness of the Old Testament saints. See their failures, how God called them back again and again and had mercy on them again and again by giving them his son again and again. That is the word before it was made flesh. See your stubbornness. See your failures. See what sins you have not given up this calendar year, even though you have had God in the flesh come to you and strengthen you. And yet you revert back to weakness. As your sin robs you of joy, as your self-pity has more strength in your heart and is more easily indulged than your repentance. See what encouragement you've refused because you sought what earthly joys could give instead of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And how God through the, through the year and throughout your life, no less than or different from all the Old Testament saints, has kept his promises to you. If you are trained by our Lord's messenger who went before his face to find joy, even as you reflect on how poor and miserable and wretched you are, to find joy there, where you actually beat your chest and say, I have nothing to offer God. But you find joy in God's favor and forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, how much more so when we are being persecuted. Advent prepares us through the deep sorrow of self-inflected penitential discipline. It prepares us for the deep sorrow of unwanted persecution. By finding joy in repentance, you learn also to find joy in persecution. And finding joy in repentance consists of finding God's forgiveness. So the joy that you find in persecution is finding the strength and ability and the willingness and the desire to forgive those who hate you and spitefully use you. Just as Stephen did, following the example of his own dear Lord. God's messenger still speaks to us today because the message of Stephen is the message that Christ commanded be preached to all nations. When Stephen began to preach, even those who hated him saw the face of an angel. You know what angel is? It's a messenger. Malachi's name means my messenger. Malach is Hebrew for angel. My angel, it means God's angel. Stephen was too. And so am I. And as much as the message I have is bigger than me, but it's for you, 
for you was born a Savior for all people. So hear God's messenger. Hear Jesus. His is the voice of Christ, the Word made flesh, and He has sent for your rising. He has sent for you to confess Christ before men. Jesus' messengers continue to be sent with this message of peace, of how God became man to bear our sin, and which of the prophets did his own people not kill? Which of you will the world not hate? As they persecuted Christ, so they persecute us. But there is joy in our suffering, because heaven is opened wide just as there is joy in our Advent because Christmas is coming. The Lord is at hand. Christ is in our suffering because our suffering was taken deep into his own flesh and blood to bear all God's wrath and to promise vengeance for us and recompense on those who have caused us harm. From the blood of Abel to Zacharias, to the blood of Jesus, to your blood. God counts every drop and knows what value it has. The value we cling to especially is the value of our Lord's blood because it teaches our hearts to desire, to receive, and even to intercede with forgiveness and mercy. That is what our life consists of. We sang while well, we would have sung be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Stephen means crown. And he is well named. To be faithful unto death is to love more than vengeance, more than whatever justice we can affect in this world through political means or just being right about what's wrong. To be faithful unto death means to cling to the mercy that your soul needs, and it is yours. If it is yours, will you empty yourselves out and cry to God with nothing to offer but sin? So much more is it yours, as you are emptied out as a drink offering by heathen who hate you, and pour your blood and mock your name. But we have something wonderful to offer the world. We have forgiveness for those who persecute us. Let us, let us pray. The world may hold her wealth and gold, but thou, my heart, keep Christ as thy true treasure. To him hold fast until at last the crown be thine and honor in full measure. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard our hearts and minds in Christ unto eternal life. Amen.